Well, today is the last day of our series on the armor of God, and we've looked at different pieces of armor that we need to put on daily to stand against the attacks of the enemies of our souls. And I want to take just a second to kind of ask the question of why we need this armor, and we're going to talk about that for a minute. But, but just right now, I want you to imagine your life as a follower of Jesus as war. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really get up every morning and be like, all right, it's time to go to war. Or maybe you have toddlers and you're like, yeah, every day is a battle. But, but like we sometimes think that you know, the Christian life is supposed to be like a picnic, like a walk in a park. Like, hey, I believe in Jesus. He owes me a certain level of comfort and happiness. But there's so much war language going on here that I think we need to change our perspective on what it looks like to follow Jesus. So Imagining that because there is a real war against us, there's some things we need to do. We need to put on the belt of truth. We need to put on the breastplate or the body armor of righteousness. We need to put on the boots of peace. We need to, put on, we need to carry the shield of faith, and we need to put on the helmet of salvation. Now, what's interesting about all of these pieces of armor is that they are all to protect us. They are to defend us from attacks against the enemy. But to win a fight... <clears throat> You can't just play defense. You may have heard the famous Bear Bryant quote that offense sells tickets, but defense wins championships. And maybe, but if you don't have an offense, you can't win either. And sometimes the best defense is, is, is an offense. So eventually, if we're going to win this war, if we really do see our life like that, we're going to have to go on the offensive. And so because of this, Paul ends the armor of God with a weapon. He says, the sword of the Spirit. So he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So he's referring, what he's referring here to is what a Roman soldier would have carried, which is a short sword called a gladius. The sword was about two feet long, it's about two inches wide, and it was used for combat when the soldier was face to face with the enemy. And in Roman weaponry training, the soldiers would have been taught to drive this sword into an opponent uh, rather than just simply swinging it at them so that the sword would penetrate their organs and hopefully kill them. Now, on one hand, I apologize because I know that that's really graphic. But on the other hand, Paul is trying to make a crucial point here that this is serious, that this is war. There is really an enemy out for you and for me. And he's going to do whatever it takes to get, us, to get in the way of us following Jesus. And because Satan can't do anything about your salvation, your salvation is secure, Satan can't do anything about it, he will do whatever he can to make you ineffective as a follower of Jesus. So the only way that we can stand firm is to be on the defensive the, be on the defense of the enemy's schemes. And then when, the, when it comes to being face-to-face with the enemy... There comes a time when we have to fight back. Paul says the, the, the sword, our weapon, is the word of God. In other words, if you want a fighting chance against your enemy, pick up and use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But before we go any further in this, I want to ask a simple question. Who is our enemy? Who is our enemy? Well, Paul tells us exactly who it is. He says, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and the authorities of the unseen world. So it's clear that there is a real enemy, Satan, and that that his army, which are evil spirits, 
or demons are the enemy. So the question, though, for me is like, okay, why does Satan even care? Why does he care about us? Why does he attack us? Why is he waging war against you and me and, and God? Well, war, has been said, is the child of pride. And Satan is the definition of what pride looks like. We learn in the Bible that Satan fell because of his pride, that he wanted to be God. He wasn't content with just being a servant of God. There's a bunch of of statements in the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, 12 through 15, speaking from the perception of Satan, the perspective of Satan, saying, I will. There's all these I will statements because of his pride. And then Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15, describes Satan as this exceedingly beautiful angel, and that Satan was the highest of all angels, the most beautiful of all of God's creation, but he was not content in his position because he was filled with pride. He wasn't content being a servant of God. He wanted the throne. So instead, Satan desired to be God, and so he tries to kick God off the throne and take over as ruler of the universe. Satan wanted to be God, and that desire is what Satan used to, t- and that desire is what Satan ca- or caused Satan to tempt Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. So Satan, because of this, hates God. He hates his creation, and, be- and he hates us. And especially if you are a follower of Jesus, you are one of God's children. You are part of his family, so Satan hates you as well. And I mean, it makes sense, because if you really want to hurt someone, you know, you go after their family, you go after their kids. You know, if, you're, you know, if you've ever seen in like gang culture or mafia culture, it's not, it's not enough that they will just sometime atta- sometimes attack the offender, but they'll threaten their family as well too. That's where it really hurts. So Satan hates God, Satan hates his creation, and Satan hates us as his children. Satan and his demons, they are the enemy, all right? So put that thought in your head that Satan and his, and his demons, they are the enemy. But we are not defenseless. We are not without a weapon. There's no question that we are to use the word of God to fight the enemy. And I want to make a sidebar comment here because sometimes we unknowingly or sometimes knowingly weaponize the Bible against people who are not his enemy. We weaponize it against people or who are not our enemy. People, all right? People are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And sometimes we use the Bible and the word of God, that weapon, towards the wrong object. The word of God represents the good news, the gospel, that Jesus loved us, that he gave his life for us. And if this is true, why in the world do we use the the scriptures to attack people as if people were our enemy? You know, there's a lot of people who have never read the Bible, or if they have, they don't understand much of it, and yet they're hostile towards it. Maybe you've had that happen. Maybe I was having lunch with a friend the other day, and he said, you know, one time he was at work and he had his Bible on his desk, and and there was a coworker who was his friend, but was an atheist and didn't know that he was a Christian, saw the Bible, and he just went to town, just ripping him apart. And why is this? Why are people hostile towards the Bible, and they want nothing to do with it? Well, we might blame it on our culture, which, and I think that there is part of that, because we say since we live in a post-Christian era, people don't want to read the Bible, and it shows by what's going on in our culture, and I'll give you that. That's part of it. But I have a feeling that that's not the main reason. I think it's because we as Christ followers have taken the scriptural sword and used it against people as if they are the enemy. 
Oftentimes, church, we use the Bible to judge people. We use it to exclude people. We use it to win arguments. We use it in all the wrong ways. I have had a lot, I have had some people attack me because I have tattoos based upon scriptural evidence, right? And whether they're right or whether they're wrong, they have to understand I'm not the enemy. You are not the enemy. People are not the enemy. What's so confusing about this is that the gospel, which is, which is the heartbeat of the scriptures, which means the good news, and for many outside the faith, they equate the gospel, the message of the Bible, as being bad news. Because when they think of the Bible, they just think of judgment. They think of condemnation. And it's not because of what they read in the Bible, but how we have represented the Bible with our words and our actions and our attitudes. I mean, imagine if we changed our approach when, we, when, we, when it came to the scriptures. Imagine if we really thought about who our real enemy is. Imagine for a moment if we communicated the truth of the Bible with our words, our love, and our lives in such a way that people were drawn to wanting to hear more about it, to wanting to read it. If people then understand the Bible for what it truly is, which is good news. What if we turned the sword of the Spirit away from people and instead drove it into the, the heart of the true, the true enemy? You know, I couldn't see it at times, but I know that there have been times in my life when I drove people away from God and the Bible by being judgmental or exclusive or legalistic. I mean, there's been a lot of times when I've used the Bible wrongly, not because I genuinely cared about the person, but because I genuinely cared about being right. And this is a hard thing to see in yourself. So what I don't want you to do is think about, man, have I ever done that? I want you to ask someone who knows you, who knows you well, and ask them, hey, do I send any signals of judgmentalism or exclusivity or legalism? Because we, draw, we, we run the risk of driving people away when we do things like quoting a verse out of context. I mean, the verse may be right, but maybe not in the situation that you're talking about. We use the Bible to get our own way when we use it to manipulate others. We use a passage of the Bible to tear someone down instead of building them up. Or we speak the truth, but we don't do it in a way that's filled with grace and love. Because, because truth and grace are two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. So how do we do this? How do we know how to, use, how to use the sword of God's word effectively against the enemy and not people? Well, I think looking at Jesus is a good way to start. So in Luke 4, Jesus went face to face with the evil one himself and he came out victorious. So we're going to be in Luke 4 for a minute. Look how he did this and how we have to do the very same thing. So it says, then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for 40 days. It says, Jesus ate nothing at that time and became very hungry. So just after Jesus was baptized, but before he began his life of ministry, he's, he's led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to a place that was literally a wilderness, but also symbolized spiritual adversity and barrenness to face the evil one, to face Satan. Oh, and by the way, he was fasting for 40 days, which means he didn't need anything. Now, I don't know about you, but I fail temptation if I just miss lunch or my nap, all right? So 
40 days with no food, there's probably no way I'm going to be able to stay in this temptation. So Satan sees a weak, tired, and hungry Jesus, and he thinks he has him right where he wants him. So Satan goes to work, and he attacks Jesus with his best tactic, which is temptation. And he goes at Jesus with three specific temptations that would be impossible for us to resist on our own, impossible for anyone to resist on their own. So look at, let's look at the three temptations first, and then we're going to go back and see how Jesus responds each time. So here's the first one. It says, then the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, go and tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. So Satan is making Jesus question God in two ways. He tries to make Jesus doubt his identity by saying, if you really are the son of God. And maybe Satan uses that one on you. You know, he makes you question your salvation. Are you really, are you really saved? Are you really sure you're a child of God? Because you sure don't act like it. He's trying to make Jesus distrust God by questioning if he's really God's son and by appealing to his own power to satisfy his needs rather than trusting God to fulfill them. Because Jesus absolutely could have turned that stone into bread. It's a great business model. He will do the same thing to you and me. His, his goal is to make us subtly question God's goodness and our identity in him. You know, when things fall apart in your life, Satan is going to be right there whispering in your ear, you sure God loves you? Man, if God loved you, why would he let this happen to you? Maybe you've been through that, right? Maybe your life's falling apart. Maybe your marriage is falling apart. Maybe your relationship with your kids is strained. Maybe things are going awful at work. Maybe your health is failing. Whatever it is. And Satan's right there saying, like, are you sure? Because, man, it sure wouldn't seem like this would happen if God was really there. J.D. Greer, who's a pastor and an author, puts it so well. He says this, Satan puts question marks in your life where God has put periods. So what does Jesus do? What will we do? We'll find out in a second. Let's go to the second temptation. It says this, then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you if you will what? If you'll just worship me. Here, Satan flat out lies. And he says, he's saying everything is his when actually everything is God. Now, Satan has power over this world, but it is not his world. And even so, Satan appeals to the desire of power, saying that Jesus can have everything his eyes can see as so, as so long as he gives himself completely to Satan. I've heard it said that the three most irresistible temptations are this, sex, money, and power. And power really means control. Now, I don't know if any of you are control freaks like me. Uh, I've often said, you know, I, I just feel like I just want things my way. I've said there's two ways to do something. There's the wrong way and then the way I do it. My kids love that one, right? I'm just like, I just want control. Here's why I want control, all right? Because I think if I can create this little bubble around me, this little universe around me, and everything goes the way that I want it to, then my life's going to be okay, right? And that's just an illusion, Power means control, and who doesn't want that? And yet, power and control, when unchecked and abused, we use it to hurt people, because I have often used my power in ways that maybe I get what I want, but I'm stepping all over people on the way there. What do you think, and, and when that happens, when you abuse power, when you abuse control, who do you think is right there smiling behind the scenes when we do it? The enemy. 
So what does Jesus do? What will we do? We'll find out in a minute. The third temptation is this. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, if you are the son of God, there he goes again with the question, jump off, right? Because the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect and guard you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. So again, not only does Satan try to make Jesus doubt himself again, but Satan misuses scripture as manipulation to try to appeal to Jesus. Because this verse that he's quoting from Psalm 91 is to remind people of God's protection, not to, not to manipulate God into some foolish display of power. You know, and, and so don't forget that Satan has, has said that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. He can sound a lot like God if you're not careful. I have had people come to me as a pastor and say, hey, God is calling me to do this or to date this person or to go to this job or whatever. It's like, what do you want me to do, argue with God? Like, it's pretty obvious you've already decided what you want to do, and you're just slapping God's approval on it so that I don't have any way to argue with you. You're not looking for guidance here. You're just looking for me to agree with what you want to do, right? Now, I have never done that, and I know y'all have never done that, but some churches have people that do. No, we all do this, right? Satan can sound a lot like God if you're not careful. That's why it's important to have people in your life who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. So Satan is tempting Jesus to prove God is with him and for him, to show that God is indeed faithful and will rescue Jesus when he's in trouble. Satan will tempt us to believe that God is not faithful, especially in times of pain and sorrow. He's going to make us doubt God's goodness and doubt God's presence, resulting in us looking to the heavens and screaming, okay, God, where are you? If you're here, do something. If you love me, do something. If you love me, give me a sign, fix this. What does Jesus do? What will we do? So Jesus is weak, he's tired, he's hungry, he's lonely, and he's face-to-face with the manipulator of all manipulators, the liar of all liars for 40 days. And here's how this whole scenario ends. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him. He left him until the next opportunity came, which means that not only did Jesus stand firm and fight the battle, he won the war. And I want to show you how Jesus fought the enemy with the sword of the Spirit in just a moment, but I'd like to remind you a few things first. One, temptation is not a sin. Martin Luther said, you, can keep the bird, you, can't, you cannot keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair, right? Temptation is not a sin, but what you do with that temptation can lead you into sin. And the other thing is that Jesus is not unfamiliar with what we go through. Hebrews 4.15 says, This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Jesus, God in the flesh, sympathizes with our temptations. And though it's not recorded in in the story of Jesus' temptation, he most certainly prayed as as he taught his followers to pray, Do not lead me into temptation, but deliver me from evil. Just as he humbled himself in prayer, he also humbled himself by leaning into and depending upon Scripture in his time of temptation. Every time Satan attacked Jesus, Jesus counteracted by pulling out the sword and driving into Satan with these three words. 
the scriptures say. The scriptures say. Look at how this plays out in each temptation. So the first one, you know, the first temptation, distrust God. Jesus said, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone. Jesus quotes the truth of scripture that says he didn't need physical food to survive, that he needed spiritual food for his soul to survive. The second temptation is this. Hey, grasp onto power and control, right? That's, that's our temptation, right? If you're like me, I just want power, I want control, I want my life to look a certain way, I want people to act a certain way. But Jesus replied, the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Yet how many times do we go back to worshiping ourselves? Jesus quoted the truth of scriptures that said he, he didn't need to put God to the test, I'm sorry, Jesus quoted the scriptures that said, true power doesn't come from position or status, but from humility and serving God and others. If you, if you really want to serve like Jesus, live like Jesus, it comes through serving and loving other people. The third temptation was to doubt God's faithfulness. The scriptures, but Jesus responded, the scriptures also say you must not put put. You must not test the Lord your God. So Jesus quoted the truth of scriptures that said, we don't need to put God to the test because he knows that God has always been and always will be good and faithful. When we go through trials, I think we're tempted to start to make deals with God. Be like, you know, I don't know if you've ever prayed this before. Like, God, please get me through this situation and I'll never sin again. And this time I mean it right? God, please, please get me through this, and I'm going to read my Bible every day. God, please get me through this, and I'll start serving in children's ministry, whatever it is, right? We try, we try to make deals with God, but every time Satan tried to manipulate Jesus or lie to him or even twist the words of Scripture, Jesus went back at Satan with three life-changing words, the life-changing truth of Scripture. He said the, tr- the Scriptures say, and in the end, Jesus won. So what do we do? What does this look like for us? How, how do we model Jesus in fighting the enemy with God's word? Well, at the chapel, we believe that we learn the scriptures best in four different learning environments that were modeled by Jesus' time on earth. There are these, the row, the circle, the chair, and go. So participation in all of these environments is vital to both sharpening your sword and learning how to use it in your everyday life so that you can fight back and, and win or fight back and win close combat with the enemy of our souls. So the first one is the row, right? The row is what we're doing this morning. The row is where someone teaches you the scriptures like where you're, you know, you're sitting in a classroom or sitting here in the worship center learning from God's scriptures. The second one is the circle where you learn and grow together in scriptures which is which is similar like it would be a small group okay because let's be honest this is we're a large church we have three campuses there's a couple thousand people that come there's no way for you to really know everybody that's why we put such an emphasis on the circle on being a part of a small group uh, my wife and I are a part of a small group that we've been there since the fall and I'll tell you what it has been an answer to 12 years of prayer that we've had you know, because there's been times where we find a small group where it's like, I like it, but maybe Marlena doesn't like it, or maybe we like it, but the kids' situation is a mess. And we just found this group of people, and there's about 10 or 12 of us, and in that, in that, in that scenario, in that environment, we really get to know each other. I mean, let me ask you that. Do you have a group of people that maybe you spend time with, share God's word with, pray together with, that, man, if you had a problem 
or there was something in your life, or maybe there was some sin in your life, you know that you could go to someone in that group and you could be completely open and honest with. Because if not, then you're missing out. The third one is the chair, where you spend time alone. You set aside time every day to spend time with Jesus in the scriptures. And here, you know, Jesus said this. He said that, you know, when he, was, when he was arguing with Satan, he said, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think there's ever been a day where I've forgotten to eat, all right? But I think there's many days where I have forgotten to feed myself spiritually. Now, think about this, because... You know, maybe you and there's people out there who think that, hey, I go to church on Sunday and that gets me through the week. Well, let me ask you this. If you went to a buffet on Sunday morning for one hour, all right, let's say you went to Golden Corral for one hour and you just ate as much as you could, right? You're getting mashed potatoes, you're getting macaroni and cheese, you got fried chicken, you hit the chocolate fountain, you dip the fried chicken in the chocolate fountain. You're just, you're just getting as many calories as you can get in in that one hour, Right? You might be good for the rest of Sunday, but by the time Monday rolls around, I'm telling you, you're going to be hungry again. And if you wait all the way till next Sunday and just go back to that buffet and just eat as much as you can again, do you think you're going to be healthy? Then why do we think that we will be healthy spiritually when we take this so casually? This Bible was a gift given to me about 15 years ago, and obviously it's pretty beat up because it's been in all over the U.S. and through Mexico with me. But one of the reasons it's been beat up is because I've realized that this is more important than food. So my question is, will you see it that way as well, too? And we've tried as a church to make it easy for you. So we have two really cool things. One is the Dwell Bible app. Um, that is something that, you know, because of your generosity, we have been able to provide free to our church family, and it is a way to experience Scripture in maybe a way you've never experienced it before. It can read the Scripture to you. There are plans. It's amazing, and it is free to you. All you have to do is text the word dwell to the number on the screen. And the second one is this. This is Right Now Media. This is awesome. There is more content on here than you could watch in the entirety of your life. No matter what you're going through, no matter what age you are, no matter what your relationship status is, you know, whether you're a high schooler, you're married, you're single, you're retired, you're a grandparent, there is something on Right Now Media for you that you could use to spend time with Jesus every single day. And then the last one is go. Go is when you take what you've learned in the scriptures and you go and live missionally in your workplace, your school, and your community in the world. So when you walk out of these doors today, I want you to understand that you're not just going out to lunch or brunch or to go home and rest or just to get ready for the week. You're literally walking into a war zone. There is a real enemy out there, and he's the enemy of our souls, and he wants to destroy us. He wants to destroy the church, and he can't do anything about your salvation, but he can make you ineffective. He can make you busy. He can make you distracted. But thankfully, God himself has given you all that you need to enter into this battle. So my prayer is for us that we would understand that, that we would just not walk out of here casually, but we would understand the importance that we have as God's witnesses. Let me pray for us. 